0: Welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working. Phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn? To hear what other leaders are doing? To hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome. To the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data science, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lockley, and with me today is Bettina Schemeister. Bettina, or Betty for short, has been leading an exceptional team of data scientists at Money Supermarket since early 2022. Apparently, their biggest ambition is to help customers save money through smart product recommendations, personalization, and optimized pricing investments. Anything to keep Judy Dench off their back, I guess. But before all that, Betty received a PhD in evolutionary genetics from the University of Zurich in 2012 and worked as a senior researcher at the University of Bristol for several years. Then in 2016, with a little help from a company called Pavigo, she made the move from academia to professional data science. Joining Royal Mail, originally as a data scientist and following several project successes, took over as their head of data science in early 2021. So we're going to explore that as well. And Betty is also a public speaker, recently spoke about their machine learning work at Money Supermarket for the annual meeting of the Operational Research Society. So once you've heard how eloquent she is on this podcast, you might want to watch out for opportunities to hear her in person too. Welcome, Betty.
1: Hello, welcome. uh, Great to be here. Thanks.
0: Great to have you with us too. And we're looking forward actually to um, another science themed conversation following on from my chats with previous guests. It's been a bit of a sort of sub theme of these conversations. I think of people like Sophie Carr with a passion for maths and Suresh with his passion for complex systems. There's definitely a a clique of you scientists as a a tribe within the data leader community. With, With all my guests, Betty, I... You've probably heard this. I like to start with asking them to share a bit of their background, their backstory, if you like, where where they're coming from. So the listeners know the experience you're sharing from. So, Betty, could you tell us a bit about your career story and how you ended up doing the work you do today?
1: Most certainly. So, um, as you already mentioned, I started as a PhD in evolutionary genetics uh, at the University of Zurich Um, and then moved to the university of bristol to do several independent research fellowships um mm-hmm. my research there was focusing on uh, simulating changes in bacterial genomes to try to reconstruct the early evolution of life wow. so i was using different different yeah uh, statistical approaches like um, mostly with with bayesian statistics or maximum right. likelihood um i did um in my role as a uh, as a postdoc at the University of Bristol, I loved particularly experimenting with different algorithms. You know, evaluating outcomes. I built mm. my own little data ingestion pipeline mm. um, back in the day, still with Perl. Maybe not what I would use today. Um, and sure. Yeah, and I enjoyed um, a lot the technical aspects of the project a lot. Mm. Um, mm. so try to automate whatever I could, and you know those sort of things. But um, and uh, coming to the second um, to my second postdoc period, um, when it was coming to an end, I faced the decision: what am I going to do next? Am I going to apply for more funding to stay in academia, or should I move on and maybe um try something else? So um, at that point, I had already published a lot. I had given a lot of keynote presentations. Um, my my work had been covered in public media, like BBC Earth. So I was at a good point in my career. But I still yeah. I felt. There is a lot in science that is not ideal it's this um constant search for more funding it's um mm. the constant pressure to publish um mm. also the publishing and funding can be a very slow process so um, you know you can't it's not moving at pace it can be very very um time consuming and and, and slow so in the end and with with this feeling that I enjoyed the technical bits the most of my work, um, I felt oh maybe it's time you know for for a change and um, uh, data science seemed like a really good choice. Um, additionally, in in science, I felt a bit you know it can be very competitive because everybody, your colleagues, everyone is applying for the same funding, so you're all competing for the same pot of money. And I felt um you mm. know it might be might be good to just move um to work for professional businesses and have a bit a different aspect to to your work life. Uh, yeah. Than- so um, I did join a boot camp. It's not a data science boot camp as such. It's from the, you mentioned the company Pivigo so they do the science to data science.
0: Oh. And it's,
1: um, it's meant to help people in academia um, to switch over to um, work for a business. So it's working with companies, it's sponsored by companies, and they um, come with their little project or they come with a, their data problems and, and and they hope that um the scientists then can then you know build a little project over the course of five weeks and come up with a solution so what you learn in this course is mainly how to speak to stakeholders how to learn about you know key performance measures in a, in a business mm-hmm. to really to find like to create projects that will end in actionable outcome that will create value for the business so mm-hmm. really just the whole business context which will then help you when you move on to find a job um, I worked on several, during that course, I worked on several little forecasting uh, models for Royal Mail. So that is around um, their mail forecasting um, so that they can then resource their staff at the different uh, delivery offices across the country. It's more than over a thousand delivery offices. Um, and yeah, they just took me on afterwards. So I worked there as a data scientist, um, started to uh, work on, you know, customer segmentation and revenue prediction for, for accounts. Um and uh, I think the biggest the biggest project I worked on was the estimated delivery window. So when you get your little, on your phone, when you get um, the message or your password will arrive between 10 and 12 or something, that's based on the algorithm that I that I built with my team. Oh, so, I, so I started with all those different projects. I started to um, work on with, more, with bigger and bigger teams, starting to lead bigger and bigger teams. So in the end, working with um, data engineers and data scientists uh, side by side. Um, and I, I think I'd say during that time, what I, the most important skills that I gained were around um, engineering and software development, which I did not have when I came from academia. Mm. Um, and that during the time, I also explored to work with, um, I, on the side, I taught myself Java and Scala just to explore a bit the non-scripting languages and um, that are a bit more right. static and a bit more, have more rules to it, <laughs> so to speak. Yes. So to get the coding in a nice way uh, automatically in a nice state. Um, I moved more to object-oriented coding and test-driven development. And yeah, through those, um, through those new skills that I acquired and successful deliveries, I then um, was promoted. And then after the birth of my daughter um, became the head of data science um, at Royal Mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've worked there for six years. Um, at the end, I had a team of 12. It was great data scientists, great ways of working. So um, mm-hmm. it was going well, but I felt, you know, I've dealt with all the data that made for six years now. It's time for a change. It's time to try something else just to see, you know, how what, what is out there. What else can data science do?
0: Hmm. And hmm. so
1: I uh, switched last year. I became the head of data science at Monday Supermarket. Um, I have now a team of eight outstanding data scientists. Um, You mentioned that we're focusing a lot, um, exploring challenges around uh, product recommendations and pricing investments. Mm. I think the latest thing that we've built is our end-to-end MLOps pipeline, where we try to get uh, in GCP, where we try to implement the latest um, tech and AI developments, such as the data build tool to improve our data quality and Mm. um, make sure we're, we're monitoring what's happening to the data. Um, over time, and Google's Vertex AI for scalable uh, scalable ML pipelines. Um, and we we'll just have some projects deployed at the moment, so just brand new, automated now. And now we're waiting for the value to come in in 2023. Wow. So yeah, looking forward to where we're going with this.
0: <laughs> wow. Wow. Great. Thank thank you, Bessie. You've got a real pace of this, and then some a new challenge, and let's learn something new. <laughs> Uh, you're definitely a, a, a woman who loves to to learn and do new things. I wonder, Pavigo, that the company you mentioned or, or the organisation that helps with this transition, are they still going? Do you know?
1: Yeah, yeah, they are going, and I will actually be on one of their panel discussions in a few. I think next oh. week. So I still, I'm still supporting them. Sometimes just with you know if there's like a discussion it's still it's mostly they have different courses so they have um the course I did was in person here in London mm-hmm. it's, it was for PhD you needed a PhD and then if you wanted to transition to um uh, yeah to to a more business context um they also do courses for master students that are online or oh, they used to be online I don't I'm not familiar with what sort of courses are running at the moment but, but sure. that's how it used to be
0: Sure, sure. No, I mean, it makes good sense. That's like a really sensible area to focus on. That you've got these transferable skills. Some people who've mastered a scientific discipline, but kind of need a way of taking those transferable skills across to a data science approach within within a commercial business.
1: Exactly. Yeah, because it's often that's what that's what data scientists uh, that's what scientists often lack. You know, this whole this whole business context, and and mm. also yeah. often they they lack like a bit behind with their with their speed, I would say, they mm-hmm. take more time. than Often you have tight deadlines in a business, so you have mm-hmm. to approach things a bit differently, You know, build something simple really fast and then move on to have something a bit more complex. And I think also the communication with people in the business, that's something that you focus on in this PVGO course. So meeting, meeting leaders um, of those companies and meeting stakeholders and making sure you manage their expectations correctly over the course of the project, those sort of things.
0: Makes good sense. I'm a big fan of the importance of those those software and people skills in the in the effectiveness of this kind of work. I, I guess I can immediately see what's in it for the scientists in terms of this transition across to um, an area of demand and an area of commercial reward as well, in, in terms of data science careers in industry and business. W- what have you seen of the benefits for organisations? What are the benefits of experienced, competent scientists like yourself? Moving across to data science, do you think you bring something to it that a lot of the people who haven't got a scientific background lack?
1: Um, yeah, I think so. It's, you know, businesses, they they have the challenge that they're accumulating data. They know data is important and they want to make data driven decisions, mm. but often they lack um, the tool set to really analyze all as they get more more data data are growing every day it's we have massive amounts of data and mm. to really analyze those data find the right you know clean the data get them in the right format um, um, experiment with models and trying to add this extra challenge so not only look at I mean a lot of companies will have um, analysts and they will already look at certain data points But, you know, not just looking backwards and what happened, having this new step of being proactive and looking forward. And Mm -hmm. what can we actually do with these data? Can we predict the future? Can we do a bit more? Can we can we be a bit more proactive in the business about how we make decisions? So um, I think that's where data science comes in and where all these academic people are really helpful. And additionally, I think um, one big point from academic people is also this ability to tell a story with the data, a data story. I mean, if you write a publication, if you go have a public presentation at a conference or um, even just write a blog, you always have to, the readers want, you know, you have to come up with a, with a full story. You don't just show yeah. data and, and move away, but you have to actually interpret it. And what is now, what is the outcome of what I've just done? Like, what is the next step? Where Where is the action point? So I think this is something that people from academia already yeah, that's what they used to do anyway. So um mm. th- I think they're adding a lot. And in, in this course, PVGo, the good thing there was also that you know, the companies would just um they would get a team for a, a set amount of time and they could test do we have enough data, do we have the right data? Can we even do something with our data? Because mm. often it might be that you're that you're at a very early stage where where there's just not enough data or the mm. data are not clean enough, there's too much noise in the data, or mm. you no, know, so I think, yeah, that makes good
0: sense. Between you. it's interesting you raise that I, I, I wouldn't have thought of the data storytelling skill. I guess I would have I would have gravitated immediately to thinking about scientific rigor, scientific method, uh, good understanding of experimental design and good discipline around that. Or, or maybe some of the other things that you've already cited, this kind of proactivity of going and on, on the side, learning another programming language, which you throw away like a throwaway remark. Um, but, but but data storytelling wouldn't have struck me. And yet, when you explain it, it makes sense that, of course, what you're doing in published research is time and time again, managing to tell the story of what the evidence reveals. Exactly, yeah. Good stuff. As I mentioned earlier, a few of my other guests also come from a science background, but only a very few of you have pursued it quite as far as you did, Bettina. As you say, you had a post-PhD established, successful, uh, published, research background i wonder given the drive you had from the beginning really to to be a biologist to improve the environment a number of things we've we've discussed between us before as well how do you still scratch the itch for that evolutionary biologist within you while you're doing a day job of a data science role within a financial services company
1: um i think uh, yeah, good question. <laughs> so I think, as you mentioned, i I enjoy challenges. And mm. I think you know all this exploring data and solving problems, that's what's the interesting bit about it. And I know um, when I was in academia, I would look at the big questions, you know, where did life come from? How did um early life shape our planet and our environment today? But um, moving to data science, you know, and I, and I agree that was that was exciting, and I love my research. But it's also, it can be very long lived. Like every, as I said, um, every publication can take a long time and Mm -hmm. um, experiments can take a very long time. As you move to um, a data science, projects suddenly become shorter the project life cycle is much quicker and you have a div- diversity of problem you're not looking at one mm. set mm. of data but suddenly you have a variety of uh, different data you could look at you know you could do some some text analysis from uh, social media um, um tweets or something or you could uh, look at, at revenue data forecasting um so you could work with time series or you regression things uh, mm. classification. Mm. so there's there's loads of different um, um things that you could do in data science which i think is enjoyable and makes makes the work enjoyable because it's so versatile um and given that the projects are not as long-lived and um, you see mm. the outcome relatively quickly if something gets in production mm. and people use it, it it's it's a I think it's exciting. So when, when my project, when the estimated delivery window suddenly was live and, you know, customers in the UK, everyone would get a message when their parcel arrives. That's a great feeling because, you know, like, you, I built that.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah so, no, I, I get yeah. that. That makes good sense, Betty, and I, I, I'm definitely a big fan of those getting as accurate as possible. Um, so, so if I've heard you right, I guess it's sort of, even if you're in a domain that wouldn't necessarily be as immediately interesting, like, delivering parcels or insurance the problems you can solve and the variety of ways you can go about solving those problems and the opportunity to make a difference and make it quicker those kind of compensate would that be a fair way to put it
1: yeah I think so and I mean on the side or obviously I'm still going to um you know there's aspects of academic life that I might miss like going to conferences and presenting, hmm. but as, as you said, I'm trying to um, keep up and still do those things. So I'm just trying to be active in the data science community, go to conferences, um, you know, write blogs, read blogs, go to yeah. meetups. And back at Royal Mail, and hopefully maybe in the future we might be able to do something similar here, we even had an engagement program where we worked with universities. So we would get PhD students, um, sponsor PhD students, to work with our data for over two to three years. And that way, you know, the team itself, uh, the data scientists who often came from academia, they could still stay in touch with academia and, and partly, yeah. not obviously not their full-time, but maybe take... of their time to contribute to a real research project. And and this way, you know, stay up to date with latest research and Mm. sort of feel like they've not not completely left academia behind, but they're still a bit involved in what's going on in the scientific world.
0: That that makes good sense. And you sound like ideally placed actually as someone to help bridge that divide. I've seen a number of organisations, commercial companies mainly, build effective working relationships with universities. But but sometimes there's this myth. mismatch of expectations particularly with masters or PhD students of a, of a commercial business ultimately being concerned with something that will work and make them money mm-hmm. and uh, the, the student being more interested in something interesting they've discovered even if it wasn't oh it didn't work isn't that fascinating you know So, <laughs> so I guess you know both worlds so you'll probably be quite good at managing the expectations on both sides.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think it's it's a lot about translating between those two worlds. Um, Mm. So making sure the PhD student student is actually working on something that we will be able to use in the company, Mm. but then also in the company managed. I mean, the calculation is simple for a company. A PhD student is relatively cheap (laughs) to pay for, (laughs) so there's not really a big loss that we're doing, and we're getting this extra pair of hands that. Does some deep research on some of our data and might find something that we would have completely missed just because we didn't have the time and deadlines were on the horizon. So it's, but of course, it's, you need to manage both expectations from the PhD student and from the company. And I would be lying if I would say it wasn't a challenge at times.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed, indeed. Nicely explained, Betty. I also really want to follow up on, it was fascinating hearing you say it, that if I understood it correctly, one of the motivations of of many for moving out of academia into the commercial world was this competitive reality in academia that you're kind of competing with one another for the success of your published research, et cetera. I guess as someone who spent most of my working life in a commercial environment with performance management systems, et cetera, as well, I'm just so aware how much the commercial world can be undermined at times by how much you're competing with one another. You want to make your the reputation of your function be stronger than others. Your you are a very competitive world in many certain certainly financial services companies. Um did you leap out of the fine pan into the fire? Was it really less competitive moving into a commercial company than academia?
1: Um, I'd say I find it it's a i find it's a nice atmosphere it's more collaborative um, than academia but I mean you know it always depends on the people you work with or your mm. personal experience so when I worked in academia I had an um, I had a, a independent fellowship. So I was in a team, my colleagues were working working on different things, which makes it difficult already. So you have to, to, to build your network yourself. Mm. And then at the same time, if everybody's applying for the same funding pot, of course, it creates a bit of pressure on people. Mm. And um, it can make you feel sometimes a bit isolated, particularly if people, for example, don't, don't want to share any results of data before it's published and you Uh know those things they slow things down and I think academia would benefit from having more money and people just being more open about what they're working on and collaborating and not being so protective sometimes um but that being said I think when I moved to data science I got the feeling That if you, I mean, this depends on the higher management, of course, um, but if you have the opportunity to work on bigger challenges in the business, within the business, and you have a clear definition of uh, the data science team, it creates a really collaborative uh, atmosphere in the data science team and an Mm. open atmosphere. So I quite enjoy the teamwork um in 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 a business and i mean after all you're all working towards the same goal you want to create some value for the mm-hmm. business mm-hmm. and ideally if you have good management you have a career path in place and yeah at some point you might leave a business that's normal that's going to happen so just be honest about where you're going yet do you want to create value for the business you also want to progress your own career that might you know but those things don't need to conflict and you don't need to compete with colleagues or something because everybody knows you know sometimes you have to take a step back and you might get rewarded for it because it helped the project so um yeah i i think it's i enjoy my current working environment very much
0: <laughs> good 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 to hear good to hear my yeah,
1: i mean, but the only thing that I wanted to add um, for mm. people coming from academia, what can happen or what I've seen in the past sometimes happen mm. is that people are not, as you're in academia, are always progressing your own career. So you're very, in a way you work, you're working like you're self-employed. You're trying to, with the publications and um, uh, with everything that you do, you try to increase your chances to get more funding. So mm. you um so you drive really everything the way you present yourself the way you re- you talk you you drive the research project but foremost also your your own career so when you come to a business suddenly you have to change a bit you can't Often I, I realize people from academia might have a very strong ego as a consequence because they' <laughs> too. So you sometimes have to practice a bit more modesty when you come to a business. and also it, it doesn't help if you become too technical when you speak to other people in the business. If they're not technical, there's nothing gained by you just showing off what you know about yes. statistics or maths. So often it's more helpful to just you know get the stakeholders on board by being not too technical and just work together towards a common goal. So that's the only thing that I've realized a bit, but also not necessarily all the time. It's just it can happen.
0: Uh, Agreed, Betty. And I've seen that myself as well. I think that the latter is certainly very good advice. I think it can be a symptom somehow, maybe of a degree of insecurity within a commercial business, that someone who's very technical who comes in, the temptation, whether academic background or not, is to want to show off how much technical knowledge they have. But nine times out of 10, the reaction that they'll get from more senior people within the business who don't have such technical knowledge is to be positively turned off by that. They feel Mm -hmm. um, that this is a person who can't speak business, who won't get the relevance, won't be able to make a difference, and they're less likely to engage with them. So it's it's kind of perverse. What they're trying to achieve is undermined by showing too much technical expertise, a bit more effort to translate and to, as you say, take a humbler approach and do more listening. Will actually give them more influence to make a difference. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Good. Good. Good stuff. Good to share. And thank you for explaining that. It is a is a different perspective, but it but it makes sense. I I must say, also listening to your story, Betty, and I I felt this when we spoke before as well. I I really want to commend you for making that move across to data science. I think you were well progressed, succeeding in an established academic scientific career, and I think a lot of people wouldn't make the risk of moving across. Indeed, many people I've spoken to in their careers by that stage have kind of ruled themselves out thinking I've left it too late. If I wanted to do data science, I should have done it earlier in my career, you know, unless I'm going to do it as just a sort of hobby later. I'm I'm not going to make a major shift. And I wonder, given that you did make the the transition a bit later after succeeding in one career, I wonder what you'd say to anyone listening to this who is thinking they've left it too late. This is a, of interest as a podcast, quite like listening to these data, data science people. But I could never do it because it's too far down the road for me. What would your answer be to them?
1: Um, of course I would say no, it's never too late. Yeah. <laughs> there is um data scientists, you know, there's a lot of positions out there. So businesses are still looking for data scientists. So loads of opportunity, first of all. Mm-hmm. And then particularly if if you've been in academia, you have, as I already mentioned, you have a If you have a strong statistics and maths background, maybe coupled with a bit of data processing knowledge and good coding skills, then then that's a good basis to make that transition. Mm. So you, I mean, you are able to manage your own projects. You're probably generating, handling, and analyzing data every day. Um, And you're able to tell that data story that we mentioned early on. So um, Mm. I think you're a good candidate to switch to data science. Some things that might be missing and that might be different as just, the pace of delivery is much quicker and there's deadlines and you don't have the time to always go in depth in each little step that you want to analyze or have a look at. Sometimes you have to make compromises, you know, and go for a minimal viable product and that's it Mm. and move on Mm. because we don't have time to stick with that project longer. The second thing is the communication with stakeholders. Um, If you have a PhD, you should have plenty of experience speaking to non-academic people. Um, Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, there might be few things that you have to learn around stakeholder communication or that you that you can learn on the job i think if you start um if you start as a junior or mid-level there's time for you to pick that up um on the job and the same goes for um understanding meaningful business kpis so suddenly it's not it's not just around an interesting story that you tell someone but you want to have some actionable output so you want to do something after you've told the story so what is our action step and how can we Consequently increase revenue or decrease costs. Mm-hmm. So there, there must be some value in there, otherwise it's not going to go anywhere. Um I think, and those are things I think you can learn on the job. So you will have to start probably as a junior or mid-level. Um if you're willing to do that and you can you pick up those other skills, then I think you can progress your career relatively quickly um in a business setting. And uh Compared to academia, the salary is much more competitive. So it should, it should, I don't see an issue there. It should be fine.
0: Yeah, no, good, really good points to make. A couple I'll add my amen to, if you like, would be the uh, the whole aspect of statistical background. I, I think there's such an emphasis, I see this particularly in job adverts, that you, you would think data scientists would predominantly good coders in the required languages, that the predominant focus seems to be people's ability to have delivered coding outcomes in R, Python or knowledge of of the the favourite libraries at this stage. And I I think there's an underestimating of high levels of numeracy and a good statistical understanding and how Mm -hmm. far that can take people in terms of the transferable skills into data science in a practical sense, in what will actually get used. Because I've I've heard a lot more cases of people coming across from somewhere like academia and being frustrated that the coding and the technology isn't interesting enough in a commercial setting, that I have people with a statistical understanding coming across and just being able to pick up good enough coding skills to make a difference because their analytical mental approach was strong. Does that make sense?
1: hmm hmm yeah. I think, I mean, when I started to... I have to be honest. I needed to freshen up my coding skills because, as I mentioned at uh, in my academic career, I worked with Perl and a bit with R, and then moving over to data science mainly Python and R.
0: Yeah.
1: So, but this is, I think, those are things that you can. There's so much material out there, courses and books. Yeah. And you can pick that up easily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, com- com- completely agree. But the other thing that fascinated me, particularly, I suppose, your um, progression to, to head of data science at the Royal Mail was the success you saw in your career from having spent so long in academia to then getting to a data science management and leadership roles r- relatively quickly. And I, I'm just aware, having led those teams before myself, having worked with, with client teams in the work that I do now, people who are data scientists or data engineers or, or other roles within those teams they often don't really have respect for people who haven't got hands-on expertise. You know, It would be very easy for a leader to come in having swallowed the textbook and knowing all the theory, but not have lots of hands-on practice, having got their hands dirty and known all the problems, to not have the respect of those kind of teams. I wondered how you added to the theory, which you're an extremely bright woman, you, I can understand you getting your head around that very, very quickly. But How did you add to that understanding of theory enough practical experience to win the respect of your teams?
1: Um, so I think, first of all, when I came from academia, I had already, as I said, I already had worked hands on um, with coding and um, experimenting mm. with different models and you know, looking at genetic data, developing algorithms. Mm. So I've wow. already done a bit of those, but uh, obviously, data science is then. Qu- can be a quite different field and the way you have to present things to stakeholders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, on the side, I mean you have you always have the time you as an academic, you learn that you're constantly learning. So you're already used to just you know refresh your knowledge on everything that's out there. so keep up mm-hmm. keep up to date with mm-hmm. latest research, mm-hmm. explore mm-hmm. new methods and tools. Um, I mentioned that on the side, I just taught myself Java and Scala
0: just to yes. understand
1: a bit better how those how those, uh, non-scripting languages work that, you sure. know, helps you to write good code.
0: I love, <laughs> and, I love the way you make that sound like you just did it on a Sunday afternoon or something. <laughs> on the side, I thought, what do I do this afternoon? Is it a walk in the park or learning Java?
1: <laughs> yeah, I actually did it on Sundays. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Lovely. Sorry, go on, Betty, I interrupted you.
1: Um, no and um, and yeah just just make sure you do those things and i think the biggest field that i had to catch up on was software development um clean coding data engineering skills because you realize very quickly um a lot of people they do data science and they start and they just think oh i just throw all those um uh, machine learning algorithms at a set of data and then i have a look what what i'll get and and yeah. that will be it and then i move on and uh, they don't realize that there's much more around this if you really want to build a project that's running in production and that will be Mm. scalable and maintainable. You have to understand how you write good code, how Mm. you test your code, how you document correctly. And you have to have the right data architecture, data pipeline in place for it to be, you know, run successful for a longer time. And way too often, you can't just depend on data engineering teams having time to translate what you've done into a good coding style. So often, you will be more successful if you have those good skills from the beginning. So I think that's where I had to catch up the most. Um, but as I said, I'm, uh, coincidentally, my partner is also a software developer. So I learned a lot of things from him as well. Helpful. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I think... Then working at Royal Mail, having worked at Royal Mail, and I led several projects there um, that have been successfully implemented and then run live in the business. I think just this experience... you know, how can we deliver things end to end? And it has been challenging at times because uh, Royal Mail, the data science team was um, um, was growing and shrinking and a lot of uh, restructures happened over the time. Mm. So uh, seeing new challenges again and again, as the data architecture changed, uh, changes, as the data landscape changes a bit um, and um, bringing products to end users so that they use it then in, in production. Um, I think that's where a lot of the learnings came with experience, just on the job, but then also on the side, just making sure you're up to date with with latest things, latest technology. We've now moved over to have everything in the cloud. I remember when I started at Royal Mail, it was just on a server somewhere locally. So
0: Yes, big, big, big improvement. Uh, something you've consistently mentioned, actually, I noticed during our conversation, Betty, is this whole learning things on the side, catch up with this, keep up to date with the other. I wonder whether you'd see that that's also something that scientists like yourself bring to the world of data science if you come into this kind of work. And I I share that because with with an IT and commercial background like me, I guess one of the things I'd sometimes find frustrating, even with extremely, and I've had some brilliant people working for me over the years, very fortunate that way, but even with extremely bright people, I think in commercial businesses, there can sort of arrive a culture of, continuous professional development, personal development. Hopefully that's something the business does for me and just delivers it and I turn up. That would be great, but I don't own own it myself. This isn't everybody at all, but I'd find sometimes this attitude of there isn't the same personal motivation to be learning for your own sake and get better and better at what you do as your job. There's a kind of assumption that the organization would provide the resources and the time and everything for you sorry long spiel by me but do you do you think that as a scientist you bring in this perspective and approach that you just expect to be continually learning and doing your own continual professional development anyway in addition to your job
1: it's it's a good point. Um that might be true. I've never I've never seen it that way, but it might be true. Mm. I mean, that's something you have to do in academia, right? So you mm. you never really mm. leave the job. You never go home. Mm. You always have your work with you and um yeah, and, and you constantly have to learn new things and and make sure that your knowledge is up to date. So um yeah, it could very well be that <laughs> that's something that we bring across from academia. But I think so here, with my current team, I try to encourage them as well to keep up the training and look up things. And I think something that you get from academia as well is this um, going the extra mile, like doing these extra things. You want to deliver a product. You don't just want to, you know, do, do what you think is your job and then move on, but mm. you want to see it through. You want to make sure that it will be used. You know, like it's, it's a bit... I guess from academia, you have this pride in a project that you work on. It's like, it's, yeah. your, it's like your project and you want it to run live in a business. Mm, mm. And and if that means you have to do something that you're not meant to do, um, you'll do it just because you want this product to run live.
0: <laughs> yeah, so, I, I, I get that. That kind of personal portfolio, almost legacy kind of mindset exactly, rather than yeah. the jobs worth kind of mindset. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You, you mentioned as well, Betty, that, restructures, reorganizations, no doubt, sometimes growing, sometimes shrinking. Um, We we orgs are a hazard of the job for many data leaders and many senior leaders. And and you've obviously been through a few. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what you've learned from them. You know, many data leaders I speak to will say that, although they were a pain in the neck, over the years of having to grow a team, shrink a team, adjust to different contexts, they actually learned something about how best to put together a data team and, and what they really need and what they could flex in different circumstances. Have you learned a preferred operating model or an approach to structuring teams? What have you learned through those restructures?
1: Yeah, Um. so, I mean, when I started at Royal Mail, it was an emerging data science team. So we were very, very small, I think only four or five people, then wow. growing to 24 people, then shrinking again to 12 people. Um wow. And uh, yeah, a very, it's just a few years, and um, over that period, you you realise, um, and we, we have worked in, as a centralized team and as a decentralized team. Mm, so when mm. I mean centralized, um, it's you know just the data science function reporting in one manager, working alongside data engineers and analysts. If I say decentralized, I mean um, breaking the teams apart. So you have product teams which will hold data scientists, data engineers, data analysts, and a product manager. Or a delivery manager or both. <laughs> yeah. Um I'd say what I've learned my preferred option is the centralized team. Okay. Um it's because in the product teams, what people do not um, realize is how important best standards of working are for data Mm -hmm. scientists Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. what happens in or what can happen in product team there might always be a way around this or to make sure this doesn't happen but as the prior as the prioritization of what work you're doing sits with the product or delivery manager Mm -hmm. you know decisions might go around fast delivery um, um, moving towards deadlines without really paying attention on how those how those things are built Mm -hmm. so it can create a disconnect between the different data scientists and what might happen is that there's no shared approach towards best standards that they Mm -hmm. you know work in different ways that they might um, utilize um non-matching data science uh, data Mm -hmm. sources Mm They might have um, uh, different uh, platforms or even coding standards, a lack of tests, a lack of documentation, yeah. a lack of code review, because often if there's only one data scientist in the team, who's yeah. going to review their code? Yeah, right? yeah quite. And ultimately, this it, it, it can lead to a failure to have products running for a long time, because as people also not only move out of the product team, but out of the company, mm. um, and there's no one else who has the knowledge of that one data scientist that now moved on, it becomes very difficult to just you know resurrect or keep things running if, if something goes wrong if the data change or if anything happens Um, of course that you, it depends you know if you find a way how you manage across different product teams to have a set standard of, of, of um, uh, end-to-end delivery uh, then that might be less of an issue but additionally there's, there might also be a limited career progression um, for the data scientists in those teams I, I found that a centralized team where everybody reports in one manager, you can you can define a set career progression program for the data scientists, so they are happy on their side, they know where they're going. Mm-hmm. Um, you can They will collaborate amongst each other, so you can create little teams where you always have two to three data scientists working alongside each other, so they're able to do the refactoring of code to mm-hmm. review what everybody's mm-hmm. done, to, you know... Um, And so set a standard ways of working that everybody will adhere to. And uh, I found it has worked really well so far. So we've now worked, have worked out an MLOps end-to-end pipeline um, where we integrated, you know, a lot of around data quality um, checks, um, uh, backup solutions, um, a set template on how we deliver in the Vertex AI pipeline, and then and w- what this means is that now whenever a project comes up, um, it's much quicker for us to put it in production. So you you find a new model or you find a new um, algorithm, and then instead of working two months or on a, how I'm going going to productionize this, how am I going to deploy this? Do I need to translate something into another language? Blah blah blah. Now with this template, we can just do it in you know it's just it's suddenly a job of a week or something or or maybe just Two three days, so um, it has improved a lot. This you know, having a common approach across the whole team and 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 has sped things up a lot. So um, to run different projects, additionally we um, have everything well documented. We integrated it with CI um, CD, so it's all yeah, best standards are in place. <laughs> And I, of I, course, I, another I, another good point was that we worked alongside data engineers and analysts, so they're yeah. sitting right next to us. So if we have questions or if something is the matter, we can just go to them. We report into the same manager, our team. So it's it's you know we have the time for each other to help out, <clears throat> which is really good.
0: I, I can see you persuaded, Bettina, and it, it <laughs> makes sense. You make a, you make a cogent argument. It, if we had longer, I'd probably put the case for the for, for the other side. I, I'm a slight, although there is definitely benefit in both models, I'm probably slightly more of a fan of the distributed model. I, you're completely right about the need for communities of practice and um, standards for consistent best practice and career paths and everything. I suppose on the distributed model, I'd call out the benefit of being really close to the organisational needs, being able to prioritise better.
1: That work. is... Yeah, I I put that and I wanted to mention that. Yeah, that's the one, that's the one, um, the disconnection to stakeholders in a centralized Mm. team. That's a bit of an issue. And it depends, you need to have good communicating data scientists to make this work. So you need to be in constant touch with your stakeholders, you need to somehow form a team with your stakeholders. (laughs)
0: Yes. So that yes, they
1: realize we're working towards the same goal. We just want to create value from this product. And as a for a data science lead like me, it's of course the challenge is, you know, reach out to everyone in the business, stay connected, find where where do the problems sit that we're facing as a company.
0: Fair, fair enough, Bettina, you make a good good point for that as well. Let me um close off our conversation then. With and thank you very much. You, it's been great, and I think you've been a much-needed voice actually to add to the uh, the alumni of this podcast <laughs> with um, the perspective you bring as a scientist and with this transition from academia. It's been great. I'm so glad you joined us. What, one of the things I try and do on every episode is uh, to protect some time to ask my guest about their tips for people who are earlier in their career, because stats seem to suggest about half of the people who listen to this podcast are younger, earlier in their career, no doubt looking out for tips as to how they get on. So with everything you've learned, Betty, what what tips do you have for those who are earlier in their data, maybe they think in terms of data science career, given what's helped you, what skills or knowledge would you recommend they focused on developing?
1: Um, so I mean it always depends where you're coming from, where you're, which yeah. skills you have to work more or most. So today many universities will have um, a computer science master's degrees or um, some data science master's degrees hmm. um, where you already have a good variety of skills for us to start off as a junior data scientist. Um, if you have a PhD in a STEM subject, then as we mentioned, you <clears throat> you have a good start, but you might have to familiarize yourself a bit with business problems and mm. meaningful key performance mm. indicators. Um, in any case, anyone should, you everyone should, you know, have the statistical knowledge to go into data science, enjoy maths and solving problems, mm-hmm. um, have the coding skills and increasingly engineering skills as you become more senior, it becomes more and more important. So you will hear machine learning engineer, a word that's being used more and more yes. during the deployment of um, a data science project and your business understanding. So how can I move in from an idea to generating economic value? Um, I think regarding statistics, there's loads of refresher courses and books that you can have online. Something like Think Stats, I think, is one of them. Um, for coding skills, again, courses on Coursera or Udacity, people can have a look at. Um, I'd recommend there's a lot of coding platforms that can be very helpful, like Exorcism, Code Wars, Datacamp. Uh, Exorcism, you will get feedback on your code, um, which okay. is really nice. Um, otherwise... Make sure even if you haven't used good coding standards that you're aware of what they are when you join a company. So mm-hmm. why? what is testing? What is refactoring? Why is it important? Mm-hmm. Maybe have heard about clean coding. Um, might be good to familiarize yourself with agile project delivery, um, yeah. what businesses are using these days um and yeah just generally your business acumen um i always say if somebody goes to an interview if you haven't had a data science job before make sure you have a project that you can present doesn't need to be a real project you can take data from kaggle or from somewhere you know there's loads of um, open source data available and um, f- tell a data story have a project that you can present that you that will have an actionable output that somebody could then implement or, or that will generate value um <clears throat> and be present in the data science community just just go to meetups meet people build a network mm-hmm. be out there there's loads there's loads of the loads of conferences happening or data science festival or um so to make sure you join those things and and boot camps can be helpful such as the science data science that I did um there's other boot camps that might be very pricey so I'm not sure that's I'm I haven't done one but I'm not sure whether it's necessary to invest that much money you you you're the best to make that decision um but then uh, other things are certificates google has this um cloud ml engineer certificate and other ones there's loads out there so additional certificates could be helpful at some point um yeah and with that i can just say good luck and um yeah just try just be get into the community and just 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 don't be shy
0: <laughs> yeah nice Nice. I like it. Just a few things suggested there by Betty then for you to get on. Go, go with the spirit of it and pick up what, what what you think will help you. I think I'd suggest our listeners. There's not not everybody has the size of the brain of, of Betty. But there we go. Um, that's been brilliant. That, thanks for your thoughts, Betty. And many thanks for your time today. It has, as I expected, been a pleasure to chat with you and a tremendous resource to dig into. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. I enjoyed this really a lot. (laughs) Thank you.
0: Glad to hear it. Uh, And thank you everyone for listening. I hope you found that helpful and continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And each week, there's also fresh content on our blog at customerinsightleader, that's all one word, dot com. So you might want to check that out too. Before then, it just remains for me to say thanks again to everyone for your time. Have a great week. And perhaps reflect on what today's episode could mean for you. What opportunities are there for more academic rigor, more scientific method, more continuous professional development and having that desire to learn? Or maybe your organization could help, could benefit from helping a scientist to make the kind of transition that Betty did and get the benefit of those brains in your business. Bye for now.